Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach with you today. I'm flying solo yet again, but it doesn't matter that I'm flying solo because I've got a brilliant topic that is going to fill the airwaves for you for the next hour. I am joined by Claire Jones, a senior lecturer in the history of medicine at the University of Kent. So no prizes what our topic of focus is going to be today. Claire has been responsible for a number of works, including an edited collection entitled Rethinking Modern Prostheses in Anglo-American Commodity Cultures. And she's the author of books including the Medical Trade Catalogue in Britain, 1870 to 1914, and The Business of Birth Control, Contraceptive and Commerce Before the Sexual Revolution. Today, we're going to be talking about the history of medicine since 1750, which is going to be a, a massive kind of topic to cover in the course of the the hour, but I'm really looking forward to this. Claire, welcome to History Hack for the first time. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm like I said, I'm really looking forward to this one. So let's let's dive straight in and let's kind of inevitably sort of start at the beginning um, mm-hmm. and think about this in in perhaps kind of quite broad terms. Our regular listeners will know that there is that kind of long term medical knowledge in the West that's based on Galen's four humours. In 1750, is that still the case or has the idea started to be undermined? Well, it is still the case, um, actually. And certainly in the course of the 18th century, the humoral system doesn't just go away um, when new systems are introduced. And I think that we have to remember that these new systems sit alongside old systems for quite some time and often centuries operating alongside each other. So humoral theory remains important in the 18th century. It remains important in the 19th century as well, um, particularly when new sciences like physiognomy start drawing on it to characterise people as 
sanguine and melancholic, etc., in order to diagnose where they were imbalanced and those four humours were imbalanced. But actually, it might surprise people to learn that there are elements of the humoral system that exist into the 20th century. So um, we have evidence uh, in, in the form of bloodletting tools that suggest that people were still letting blood in order to balance out their, their humours, in order to let go of that excess blood into the early 20th century. So um, there's a long, long legacy um, of humoral medicine that can, goes through centuries and past 1715. But saying that, we do start to see some shifts and changes towards the end of the 18th century. Um, and we see a shift to what historians have generally called hospital medicine, or as uh, Foucault called it, the birth of the clinic. And that is, of course, that patients begin to be treated in institutions like hospitals rather than at home by and, and begin to be seen by um, by different kinds of doctors. And we see this in the proliferation and the establishment of new types of hospital across Europe, most notably in, in post-revolutionary France. So this hospital medicine is underpinned by is a new body of medical knowledge, and that is pathological anatomy. So under humoral medicine, we see the conception of illness and disease um, as holistic and doctors um, placing the patient's condition in the wider context of his or her lifestyle and biography and often um, planetary alignment and, and, and star alignment and things like that. But under hospital medicine, we see the most salient features uh, of the illness are abstracted and um, are correlated with pathological changes in specific organs of the body. So in other words, hospital medicine begins to localise disease from a whole body to a diseased organ or tissue that then could be cut out or otherwise treated. So these new methods and new technologies of treating disease also affect diagnosis of disease, perhaps most famously with um, auscultation and the stethoscope. So we see the emergence of the stethoscope introduced um, in 1916 at the Necker Hospital but, uh, in Paris by Lenec in order to locate illness in the heart or in the lungs. And he uses the stethoscope in order to, to do this, to examine the patient's chest. So from there, from, from the emergence of pathological anatomy and its kind of gradual growth um, across Europe, we see medicine become increasingly loca located, not just in organs, but in smaller and smaller parts of the human body. So tissues. And eventually, when we get into the 20th century, we see that disease is located in the cells and in DNA. So from the rise of pathological anatomy and the, the subsequent eventual decline of humoral medicine, we see the breakdown of the patient into smaller and smaller parts. And so the patient as a whole disappears and essentially parts of their body become objects of medicine. What kind of causes all of this change then? Because, I mean, this is post kind of the age of enlightenment. Is there influence from that that's kind of making people think a little bit differently? Is it just ongoing experimentation? Are there developments that allow people to start to study particular organs in a much kind of finer detail what, what what's the cause of, of this change um well i, I think it's multi-causal there's there's many there's many kind of factors involved here and there's not one single explanation for it all certainly the post-revolutionary um 
fever in France um, plays an important part than this idea of democratizing medicine and um, stopping it from being something that only the elite can study and only the elite can be treated. So hospitals begin to kind of admit um, working class people um, and, you know, they can afford to be treated by being sponsored and, and, and things like that. So there is a certain um, illegalitarianism to this new um, medical system that um, tries to do away with this. The Only the elite can kind of examine uh, patients um, and things. But um, I guess underneath it all as well, medicine has been moving in that in that way. So for some time and, and becoming more scientific if you like um so whether it would have happened anyway or or differently without the kind of revolution um it is difficult to say um but certainly that was important to it and let me stay with something that you you just picked up on there which is about kind of medical education mm. i have this sense that in the 18th century it's partly done through apprenticeships um but then you're kind of talking about how there's a there's a shift in that um, and how actually, you know, people are starting to admit individuals for, for training courses within hospitals. So talk us through how it works and how it changes over this period. So um, increasingly, these new hospitals end up having kind of aligned uh, are aligned with new medical schools that, that do aim to make medical education more democratic, also at the same time, more empirical um, based on studying and observing the patients that are in the hospital and also more practical so um, particularly in physic um, where physicians have been at kind of the top of the medical hierarchy there's a try and shift away from this um, this elite education rooted in the classics and latin and very hands-off um, towards being more practical and, and more hands-on and in fact it, this this new kind of medicine ends up reuniting physicians, surgeons and apothecaries around the hospital. So previously they had their own colleges and had very different routes into the respective branches of the profession. But um, hospital medicine actually enhances something like apprenticeship where surgeons in particular walk the wards in hospitals. And so that's a continuation of the the apprenticeship. And, And then physicians end up doing that too, walking the wards with their um, respective instructors and lectures ended uh, take place in hospital operation operating theatres again that's a, a, another aspect of the more practical empirical side of things and so really arguably these new forms of education that come in um, have stay with us and 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 hasn't really changed uh, much since there must be breakthrough moments in in the story of medicine during this period though I mean as a layman, you know, the, the automatic thing for me to think of is Florence Nightingale with the, the kind of the breakthroughs in hygiene during the Crimean War, Alexander Fleming with antibiotics. Are we guilty of overplaying those developments at the expense of other things that are happening during this period? Well, personally, I think we are. Um, and I think it's important to consider, first of all, why we um, think of these episodes um, as breakthroughs and others, other developments, we don't. Why do we remember some and not others? <clears throat> Is it simply, you know, that Nightingale and Fleming and 
others that we remember were kind of enlightened geniuses who somehow knew the way to progress medicine and I think the answer is probably no um so if we if we think of the examples of of Nightingale and Fleming they both built on a long 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 developing tradition of disease prevention and Nightingale was one of many just met one of many at the end of the 19th century early 20th century to think about hospital hygiene and, and cleanliness and ventilation but uh, it's important to think of her background as a white privileged elite woman um, with um, kind of establishment and government connections she is often remembered and somebody like Mary Seacole who was a black Jamaican of, of lower social status who also had similar ideas about hospital reform in the Crimea is only recently being remembered um, so that's important and also you know Nightingale was wrong about a lot of things she continued to emphasize the, the, the you know the disease was caused by miasma and insisted that there's no such thing as bacteria um, until her death in 1910 and similarly um, Alexander Fleming he discovered penicillin in, in the late 20s but he already built on existing structures of um, drug discovery and hospital medicine um, through the sulfonamide drugs, which already began to successfully treat bacterial infections in hospitals at that time. So there was already things going on um, to help kind of uh, allow Fleming to, to make his discovery. So... I think breakthroughs are remembered not just for the fact that they may be important to medicine, but because, firstly, of the pro profile of the people and their so social status. And secondly, because who is championing them? So Florence Nightingale, again, um, is very much championed by the British press and the government at the time. But also people like Alexander Fleming are championed by the profession, the medical profession itself. And if we think about... Um, how most medical history started, it was written by medical practitioners who wanted to champion pioneers in their own profession. So to an extent, the medical profession defines their own um, pioneers. And I think that's where we kind of get our obsession with medical breakthroughs and medical progress from. It's a, it's a narrative from the medical profession itself. Um, and thirdly, I think it's easy and, and nice for the public to, to celebrate medical heroes, to think that there are people that um, are making us, ensuring that we are healthy and, 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 and being cured from illnesses. And, and certainly if you're putting together a museum display or, you, you, you know, erecting a statue of someone, biography is a much more straightforward way. Um, than champion, championing medicine and, and thinking about what it's actually about, which is often a team effort and it's often very, very complicated, messy and um, results in a lot, a lot of failures. Um, and I think this question about medical heroes, medical progress might also expand into other fields. If we think about now the recent discussions around commemoration and statues in, of 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 colonizers and, and slaveholders and things, we can see that actually maybe the people, people that we thought were pioneers in the past, we don't think are pioneers now. So let me kind of ask what is probably quite an awkward question, which is who would you encourage us to, to think more about? Who's, who's been kind of left out of this story for a variety of reasons? Who 
we should be kind of researching and learning more about? I think um, that's a very good question. And um, I guess I couldn't reel off names of people who I find personally interesting, but perhaps more importantly, we should look at the, the people that are behind the scenes, perhaps the lab technicians, um, the cleaners in hospital that are doing some of the hygiene work. Um, so there are the practical people that are actually doing some of the theoretical stuff that's often just as Im- just as important than the kind of bigwig professors and, and um, uh, medical practitioners. So really, we need to look at the whole structure of um, how medicine works and who are the contributors to it in in from the top to the bottom of the hierarchy, I think. And certainly something I've looked at in the past is also washerwomen in um, hospitals and how important just just cleaning the laundry was um, in hospitals. So, yeah, there's a lot of different types of people that are often not considered but are still very important to improving health. That's really interesting. I've never thought about kind of, the folks who were doing the laundry but as you say in an environment like that in terms of bacterial control that they're absolutely vital yeah um, absolutely now i know you've done a lot of work on surgical instruments in this period how does surgery work and how well developed are surgical instruments because we've all got this kind of horrible histories concept in our head but mm-hmm. i happen to know from my work on napoleonic stuff that mm-hmm. actually the the techniques for things like amputation are it, it looks very brutal, but the techniques are quite kind of every, people have worked it out. OK, I wouldn't necessarily say they're sophisticated by modern standards, but mm-hmm. they've worked out how to amputate when necessary, how to do it quickly to minimise as much as possible trauma to the patient. So talk mm-hmm. us through the, the techniques, the instruments um, and, and, you know, how, how good are these instruments within the context of the time? Because obviously, you know, we look at them today and we go, well, you know, these are these are quite brutal tools, but all things are relative. And so for the technology at the time, you know, are these actually quite sophisticated, cutting edge things that they're using? Yeah. yeah so as you say, you know, we have this idea of surgery being really brutal and dangerous and, you know, often patients wouldn't survive from it. And um, to an extent, that is also that is true. Um, but it isn't the full story. As you say, surgeons in the 18th, 19th century become very skilled at knowing how to successfully operate. They know exactly what kinds of um, operations are going to be successful. Largely, those are on the surface of the body. So limb amputation, um, bullet removal, the removal of tumours or or skin or or anything like that. And um, Things like lithotomy, which was kind of um, obtaining bladder stones through the urethra, was a particularly brutal operation, but did actually have quite a reasonably high success rate. But anything else beyond um, bladder stones um, was considered too dangerous. So anything deeper into the body was considered too dangerous. So surgeons knew this and and knew their limitations, but also knew their strengths and surgeons were extremely skilled at amputating limbs in a matter of minutes they knew they had to be quick to prevent shock and also infection 
and they knew that they had to be physically strong in order to kind of manipulate the body very quickly, but also gentle at the same time to not only work the instruments, but also to um, allow the patient who was often awake um, to remain calm. Because if they were calm, (laughs) hopefully the patient would remain calm. So, yeah, hospital medicine and the rise of pathological anatomy that I talked about, it didn't really change that because surgeons had always localised disease and then they cut it out. That's what they did. So um, actually, pathological anatomy was the surgical perspective. Um, and surgical instrument didn't really change um, with these uh, this, the rise of hospital medicine. And it's just the location of operations tended to change. And so the basic surgical kit, key to most operations, was were things like the humble scalpel, forceps, surgical saws, bone knives, tourniquets. Um, and these were made, we, these were made exactly to purpose and they did their job very well, um, not just for the time, but for any time. And the design of certain instruments, like for some forceps, have been exactly the same since the Roman period. I mean, there are only so many ways in which you can hold back flaps of skin, right? So if it works, it works. And surgeons were very, very skilled at knowing how to work uh, work their instruments. But having said that, of course, there are new innovations that come in that do change surgical practice. And I think the most important of these in the 19th century was certainly anaesthesia and then asepsis. So the ability to limit bacterial infection in the wounds. And this meant that surgeons were not only able to take longer um, than they had before, obviously, because the patient was asleep, but also able to go deeper and inside the body. And we see the development of different surgical specialties um, as a result of that, and one of which was uh, is gynaecology. So obviously, surgeons know um, about the workings of the female reproductive organs, but really had only seen them on cadavers. And so um, being able to put a patient under anaesthesia and prevent operative infection meant that they could safely remove things like cancer of the ovaries, the womb, um, etc., And of course, you know, these innovations massively impacted on patients as anaesthesia eased some anxieties about having surgeries. Although it's important to note that when anaesthesia is first introduced, there are lots of anxieties around overdosing and and patients do die from um, anaesthetic overdosing and also arrhythmia that it causes as as, um, doses aren't really standardised at that time. Um, And there are lots of other radical developments I could talk about, X-ray, for example, in the early 20th century. But one of the most interesting to me and most fundamental innovations has happened more recently, I think, and that's keyhole surgery um, from the 1980s. And and this changes things radically. Patients don't need general anaesthetic and surgery is carried out essentially through the use of cameras um, through a tiny incision in the patient's body. And what's interesting is that students now, um, surgical students don't often have much education in open surgery as it was. And those surgeons that are retiring that used to practice open surgery are taking that that knowledge of the techniques of open surgery uh, with them. So, yeah, I think overall it's important to emphasise, to not overemphasise the bloody and gory element of early surgery. too much and to focus on actually what they could achieve 
with what they had. Um, so that's imp- as important to me as, as change, I think. I mean, as you say, you know, the developments just kind of keep on coming, don't they? The further you, you get into this, is that a result of communication being better and therefore the exchange of ideas kind of generates a snowball effect? Or is there kind of more to it than that? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, well, I think... I think it's difficult it's difficult to, to, to know that, that um, I think, obviously, c- communication it, um, among the medical profession, once it becomes a profession, um, there are journals and um, obviously professional societies where this information is regularly exchanged and agreed upon and there is there becomes there become consensus. But I think that um, we have to also question. It's not just a question of communication. I think we have to question the the, the our own personal value system and and how we value progressive scientific-based Western medicine. So the past medical events that we deem significant are those that fall into this idea of technical innovations and medical science. And so they fit with our current worldview. Um, and, but in other value systems, you know, like Chinese medicine, for example, the idea of progress and, and, and is not so important. So um, we have to think about how we're projecting our current ideas um, onto the past. Um, and I think that there's this also this idea that more documents and more evidence exists um, for the modern period than it does. Um, so, again, you know, showing how the circulation of ideas occurred. But actually, there's plenty of evidence, probably more evidence than we think from pre-1750, where we can see that there are what we would consider relatively sophisticated ideas around medicine, particularly around public health, possibly arguably more sophisticated than our own COVID measures, but um, I won't go into that. So certainly something somewhere like medieval Italy, there's you know a whole host of um, evidence to suggest the communication of ideas around disease outbreak in, in, in quarantine measures in, in port cities, mainly because it's really important for trade and therefore the economy. And there's also numerous kind of developments in Islamic medicine um, around drug-based therapies, for example. So um, it's not simply a, a, about communication. Some, I guess, 
a lot of it is our own standpoint and and how we and how we challenge that um, rather than an accurate reflection of of the past. I know one of the areas that you've particularly worked on is disability history and the use of prostheses. And folks will know that we spoke to uh, Sonia Zakczewski about the archaeology surrounding disability uh, in the ancient period a while back. So I'm really keen to kind of tap into to this as a kind of a, a what will probably become a, a running theme um, on history hacks. What kind of prosthetics are, are people using at the start of this period? Are these quite kind of simplistic things or, or are they, again, you know, for their time, quite sophisticated? Mm. Well, I think they were quite sophisticated. And again, um, they were manufactured for um, and perfect for the needs of the people that, that needed to use them and also the surgeons that, they, that fitted them. Um, so we, what we begin to see, which I, so we find, you know, all sorts of different kind of um, artificial limbs, artificial body parts that, that people use um, in the 18th century, um, you know, n- uh, facial prostheses as well as body prostheses. Um, <clears throat> but what I think is particularly interesting from the, from the late 18th century onwards with the rise of it kind of industrializing polite society is, is the fact that um, artificial limbs and other prostheses tend to, t- to, be- to become um, disguised and they try to disguise visible signs of physical impairment where previously the prosthetic was just meant to serve its per- person. It didn't have this disguising element to it. So um, they're trying to disguise essentially this disability as, 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 the, as society deems forms of disability less and less acceptable. So by the 19th century, certainly, um, there becomes a really um, a demand for artificial limbs that mimic human limbs in terms of the shape and the colour. And there are hearing aids made from different kinds of fabric that are disguised as everyday objects like beards and fans and, and, and ornaments and, and hair accessories. Um, so it's really interesting how... Um, not only do prostheses in their design change, but the meaning of uh, disability changes itself. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just sort of slightly blown away by that. Why why do we see this kind of sense that disability becomes less acceptable over the course of this period? Um, I think it's to do with the changing, um, it's to do with several things really, it's to do with the economy and the changing perceptions of um, people's ability to work um, and, and, to, and to fit, and so there's how people work and, and how uh, acceptable those are disabilities in, in factories um, and in the industrialising world. Um, so you know, legislation like um, the Poor Law Amendment Act um, in 1834, you know, puts people 
into workhouses um, for those that can't work. And obviously those that can't work, a lot of those have physical disabilities. So um, it's a changing nature of the state, the changing nature of um, the economy and places of work and how people earn their living. Um, but at the same time, um, there is this growing social and cultural element that um, it's considered not proper in polite society to display um, your kind of physical disability and why kind of social and cultural elements change are difficult to pin down. Part of that might be because, again, medicine becomes increasingly professionalised and um, starts to dictate um, what is right, what is normal, and that disabilities are medical um, irregularities or diseases that need to be fixed, essentially. So when you start seeing disability as pathological, um, then you see it as something embarrassing and therefore something to hide. So um, I think there are lots of different factors that make um, disability something that needs to be invisible um, in this period that all kind of converge together. What impact does war have on all of that? Because battle injury should be seen as kind of part of, you know, the trauma of war and part of sacrifice. So do you see differences in how people kind of view injury as a result of war compared to injury and, and therefore disability that's become a product of injury in battle and, mm. and how people view disability from other causes mm. well I certainly think that yeah wars do change things because um not only change um the kind of scale of production of prosthetics just simply due to the scale of the number of men uh, you know receive life-changing injuries so there's the scale of production obviously increases on the one hand so think about the American Civil War for example which is um studied by a lot of kind of historians of disability there are around 32,000 amputees and that's just from the Union Army so of course um, the market for artificial limbs increases hugely then um, but it's not only the scaling production of um, prosthesis it's also um, the unification if you like under uh, national or um, uh, community aims so this is a large-scale national problem um, that needs the state to intervene in a way that it hadn't before um, before war and of course the two world wars are um, really good examples of how the state in Britain particularly gets involved in limb production and limb fitting in a way that it wouldn't have done um, so we see the emergence of, you know, hospitals, specialist hospitals like Roehampton, limb fitting hospitals. And obviously the state becomes is, is still involved um, in the provision of things like war pensions. So um, that in itself is, is an indication that, you know, there are the deserving disabled, if you like, um, that have sacrificed their limbs or, or, or their bodies for the good of their country and perhaps those that are considered less deserving who haven't. Um, so I think that's the difference that war makes, not, not just in, in terms of the scale of the bodies, 
um, that might require some form of procedures, but also in the fact that the state needs to get involved and, and sanctions the production and also the pensions of those of those damaged in war. At what point does this stigma start to ease? Because I've certainly noticed that a change over the course of my lifetime in terms of how people regard disability and mm. you know, questions about hidden disabilities finally being acknowledged properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it feels like an ongoing process. So at what point, and at this moment in time, I wouldn't say that we, we've got there yet in terms of mm. removing stigma around disability. But at what point do you start to see an improvement from this kind of what, to me at least, kind of feels like a backsliding in terms of the the way in which we we view disabilities mm. earlier in in this period well i certainly think from the late 20th century we get the the rise of um disability rights activism is really really important in shifting um in shifting the seat of power if you like from the medical profession to um disabled people themselves and also the growth of um, disability studies in a discipline as a discipline in its own right for rejecting what what has been termed as this medical model of disability where you know forms of physical or mental impairment need to be fixed or corrected rather than a social model where which dictates that adjustments need to be made in society to accommodate those with impairments so incre- the increasing rise of, of more social and cultural models of disability that actually pe- people should be allowed to live as they want to live without being fixed um, by the medical profession um, have, been, have been really powerful. And as you say, things are slowly starting to shift, um, you know, in places like the workplace and, and, and transport and in schools and so and, and etc one one important um cause i guess close to my heart as my grandparents were were deaf is is the growth and rise of um you know deaf cultural heritage and the importance of culturally deaf people who reject technologies from the medical profession like cochlear ear implants and and other and other technologies um, that try and fix fix their deafness and instead embrace their deafness as part of their identity and, you know, embrace sign language as a first language, etc. So there, there, there are, and in America particularly, you know, Godelay is the, the deaf university and um, that's essentially where um, culturally deaf people have, have really flourished and, and, and the movement has really flourished. Um, I think perhaps possibly... The UK is, is somewhat behind in that in that respect, but as you say, things are slowly sh- shifting, and different disabilities are being recognised, um, and people are being accepted for for who they are, and not and not for not for their disability. But yes, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, I mean, just reminded of the, the new James Bond film and. Um, the kind of the baddie always having this kind of facial, you know, disfigurement. It's 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 so so backward and not and and should be challenged. I think and, and the baddies shouldn't have any kind of physical or mental disfigurement. Why is that always the case in 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 popular culture? So that that definitely needs to change. And there's a whole podcast right there, isn't there? On I think so. Know, the yeah. the the 
cultural kind of trappings of that. I mean, you could trace that back, no doubt, to Robert Louis Stevenson and Treasure Island and... Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and no doubt beyond that even. Um, so you know, there's, there's something for me to think about in terms of yeah. uh, scheduling a, a podcast for the future. I do want to tap into uh, another area. And this, is, again, is something where we could do a whole podcast in its own right. But I know you've worked a lot on contraception during mm. this period. Give us just a flavour of how that changes. Mm. So, again, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of economic sides and the industry sides of things, just as I'm interested in the kind of prosthesis industries. Um, and I've looked at how rubber and its kind of development um, has had an impact on, on contraceptive manufacturing. And so by the late 19th century, innovations in rubber manufacture um, do allow for the production of contraceptives like female contraceptives like um, CAPS and douches but also condoms and so there emerges a small industry um, that are popular that's popular among the middle and upper classes um, of, of these kind of rubber contraceptives and obviously previously prior to rubber condoms are made from animal intestines and things like that so rubber does enable some kind of standardized production um, at this point although to our mind those first rubber condoms would be extremely crude uh, and probably very unpleasant to use. And obviously those ones at the time were reusable. So um, you would you would wash out your condom and um, look after it, dust it with chalk, roll it up and put it in a box ready for the next time you wanted to use it. So um, spontaneity wasn't great either with uh, those early condoms. But really, um, I argue that the it's the interwar period where rubber contraception becomes really popular. Uh, and democratic and widespread and by that time um, we have latex and, and latex allows for cheaper and easier manufacture but also allows for much thinner condoms um, and um, obviously they're much more pleasurable and easier um, to use and we see the emergence also of large firms like London Rubber Company who begin to produce Durex latex condoms from 1929 and obviously they're still around today um, but we also see not just from the production side but um, from the kind of demand side that people are more comfortable with using contraception the sexual taboos of the 19th century and Edwardian period are breaking down by the interwar period so that birth control discussions start to appear in popular publications and women's magazines and novels, etc. Um, it starts to become more socially acceptable and is sanctioned by the church that married couples can use contraception in order to control their fertility and the medical profession as well begin to take an interest in birth control. And we see um, the widespread sale and promotion of contraceptives in chemists and family planning clinics and even vending machines that used to be on the side of street corners. Um, and of course, you know, not everyone's happy with this new increasing visibility of contraceptives and it does end up resulting in a conservative backlash. So this is where we get kind of discretion from companies in, in terms of their promotion and sales. So a lot of disguised advertising in terms of surgical goods and hygienic goods goods with names like the wife's friend, which, you know, if you were looking for something, you would know what it means. But if you didn't know what it means, then um, it wouldn't offend you. 
Um, but nonetheless, by the interwar period, you know, we see contraceptives as an important commodity. And certainly post the Second World War, um, once, um, you know, condoms are widely distributed among British troops to prevent venereal disease, it becomes more acceptable again um, to use contraceptives. Um, I think it's interesting as well that it's only relatively recently, perhaps in perhaps in the, even to the 1970s, that the use of condoms in particular has become acceptable outside of marriage. So marriage has become marriage is important throughout this kind of this history. And again, another important change happens in in the use of condoms in public health campaigns in the 1980s and 90s in in tackling the AIDS crisis. So that's that's also really really important and that happens a bit more recently um, than my research but something to uh, to look further into. That is absolutely fascinating you have got to come back for another episode to talk to us specifically about contraception because I've got about a million questions that have occurred to me <laughs> including questions about you know the class element and mm. and so on um, but we won't indulge in those now um, we will have you back to, to discuss that properly and give it the attention that it deserves. Thank you ever so much for this, Claire. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, so I'm at the University of Kent, so you can find out um, about my interest and in my teaching um, at the University of Kent uh, website if you just Google me. Um, I'm also on Twitter if you are interested in following me. Um, at, it's Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E underscore L underscore Jones. So, um, yeah, get in touch. Brilliant. And folks can find the links to your uh, book via the History Hack bookstore, the Medical Trade Catalogue in Britain, 1870 to 1914, and the Business of Birth Control, Contraceptive and Commerce Before the Sexual Revolution. Claire, this has been really enlightening. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Hello, folks. Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts. But each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even. But as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles, 
written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me and the rest of your down the pub regulars, thank you and have a great day. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.